consumption. The differences between the rich and the rest reach even the banal everyday of consumption. The clothes, appliances, cars, electronics, and so on that people own, the services that they use, the foods that they eat, and the businesses from which they buy all these things. Banal but important. Household consumption in the United States amounts to nearly 70% of GDP, and consumer goods therefore fix the tone for society writ large. At mid-century, that tone was egalitarian. The middle class could afford its blossoming lifestyle, and good taste and even virtue required the rich to emulate the middle class. Today, by contrast, consumption segregates the rich from the rest, and both tastes and morals increasingly affirm luxury. The separation is so complete that the brands a person buys now reveal more about her income than about her race. For most of human history, elites owned and consumed different things from the masses, not just in degree, but in kind. In feudal orders, land ownership was restricted to a narrow caste, and ownership constituted elite status. Indeed, absolute land ownership was a distinctive prerogative of the monarch sovereign, who sat at the pinnacle of the elite. Moreover, sumptuary laws regulated myriad other forms of consumption, for example, by forbidding all but the elite from wearing lavish fabrics or colors and eating opulent foods. The bourgeois revolution inaugurated a long erosion of this consumer caste order. Indeed, some sumptuary laws sought to hold back the tide, taking express aim at public displays of commercial rather than aristocratic wealth. Early 20th century capitalism accelerated the process so that by mid-century, the caste distinction between the consumption habits of the top and the middle had effectively dissolved. With respect to land and houses, federal government programs supporting home buyers had raised home ownership rates from 44% in 1940 to 63% by 1970. There has been no further substantial increase since then. And cars, refrigerators, ranges, clothes washers and dryers, and air conditioners were by the 1980s all widely dispersed throughout the middle class. Mid-century Americans bought the same modest cars and watches and ate out in the same modest restaurants. They even bought the same brands from the same stores. In the 1970s, three out of every four adults entered a Sears store at least once a year, and half of American households had a proprietary Sears credit card. Taste and even morals grew to endorse these economic facts. The mid-century homes that built St. Clair Shores and countless similar suburbs, and the modernist furnishings that filled them, self-consciously relied on materials, designs, and techniques that suited the modest affluence of a broad middle class rather than the luxurious rich or the thrifty poor. Even the cars that made suburban life feasible were deliberately designed and built to suit middle-class budgets. Henry Ford's famous practice of paying his workers enough so that they might become his customers, equally importantly, required him to build mass market rather than exclusive cars, whose quality and price made his workers want and be able to afford them. By mid-century, the aesthetic models behind these practices had colonized culture and become moralized. Their force was so powerful that it applied even inside the elite, 
as when fortune ridiculed the few mid-century business leaders who, whether in Newport cottages or Palm Beach villas, continued to try to live in the style of the Gilded Age. Today, meritocratic inequality reverses this trend. Consumption inequality, understood in terms of raw dollar sums, strikingly tracks income inequality, including at the very top of the distribution. Moreover, consumption divides the rich and the rest beyond the numbers. Middle-class and elite consumers buy increasingly different things from different stores. They even pay for them in different ways. On the one hand, thrift goods, which appeal to people who struggle in economic inequality shadow, increasingly dominate middle-class consumption. Thrift retail sells conventional consumer goods to households that are forced to economize. And thrift finance enables a middle class whose stagnant wages no longer match its needs to fund consumption through borrowing. Thrift retail, low-cost supermarkets, dollar stores, and big box stores, has grown astronomically in the past decades. Walmart alone has grown from a single store in 1962 to generate nearly $300 billion in U.S. revenue in 2016. And Dollar General and Family Dollar have averaged nearly 9 and 7% annual revenue growth in recent years. Shoppers at all three stores earn substantially less, in the case of Family Dollar nearly 40% less, than shoppers even at other less down-market big-box stores like Target, and the earnings gap to shoppers at upmarket stores is much greater still. When big box chain stores displace mid skilled for unskilled retail workers, they contribute directly to the demand for the goods that they sell. Just as Henry Ford's decision to pay his workers enough for them to desire and to afford his cars epitomized the Great Compression's egalitarian economy, so Walmart's practice of paying its workers so little that they cannot afford to shop other than at thrift retailers, epitomizes today's unequal economy. Thrift finance has also grown rapidly to become an inescapable part of middle-class life. Payday loans give this pattern an open and notorious illustration. Payday lending serves people who obviously cannot afford their own lives, even week to week. The obviousness of the shortfall gives the business a bad odor, but that has not stopped its increase. The payday lending industry has grown from fewer than 500 stores in the early 1990s to 12,000 in 2002, to 22,000 by 2016. There are more payday lending stores in the United States today than there are McDonald's and Starbucks franchises combined. And in 2012, Americans spent $7.4 billion on payday loans. Moreover, this open expression of thrift finance is only the small tip of a massive iceberg. Middle-class households accumulated substantial savings at mid-century, and as recently as the late 1970s, the bottom 90% of the income distribution enjoyed a savings rate of between 5 and 10%. But since then, saving vanished, and borrowing largely replaced income as the source of funding for rising consumption. Household debt therefore accumulated rapidly for this group, coming to exceed income 
in the late 1990s, with debt accumulation highest between the 50th and 75th percentiles. The borrowing does not go to frivolous or extravagant purchases, but instead overwhelmingly serves socially legitimate or even necessary expenses that nevertheless exceed the incomes mid-skilled labor can command. Indeed, seven out of every 10 low- and middle-income households reported using credit cards as a safety net to pay unavoidable costs such as medical expenses and car and house repairs. Middle-class households quite generally subsist on what are functionally payday loans, required to paper over the widening gap between middle-class needs and stocks. Especially against the backdrop of increasingly insecure earnings, debt used to finance consumption casts an inescapable shadow of catastrophe. As Charles Dickens's Mr. Macabre complained, annual income 20 pounds, annual expenditure 19 pounds 19 and 6, result happiness. Annual income 20 pounds, annual expenditure 20 pounds 0 and 6, result misery. Macabre faced debtor's prison, as had Dickens's own father. More recently, middle-class Americans face an unprecedented wave of foreclosures and bankruptcies. The scale of enforced debt collection is remarkable. In a typical recent year, New York City alone saw 320,000 consumer debt cases filed in its civil courts, a number roughly equal to all the cases filed in all federal courts that year. Even with the threat of prison removed, debt remains an affliction for the middle class. And like imprisonment, foreclosures and bankruptcies cast their shadows across whole lives and down the generations, breaking marriages and disrupting childhoods. Indeed, the effect is so powerful that the middle class has been renamed by some the precariat. On the other hand, luxury goods, goods that appeal to those at the top in the glare of economic inequality's light, increasingly dominate the spending and mold the self-image of the rich. The norms and habits that framed fortune's mid-century sensibilities have been ground away under the pressure of meritocratic inequality's inner logic. And the meritocratic elite now prizes the extravagances that the magazine then derided. Tastes and even morals falling in line with new economic fundamentals, now disparage things that are ordinary, unexceptional, or merely adequate, and valorize distinctive, extravagant opulence. Meritocracy makes this turn inevitable. Where industry constitutes honor, meritocratic elites lack the time to cultivate the leisured habits that Veblen described, and, alongside conspicuously intense labor, Luxury goods, rather than exploit, become the main avenue for establishing social and economic caste. The rich now consume conspicuously in order to shine rising inequality's light on their fortunes. Fine and expensive things become honor's physical manifestations, an embodiment of industry and of the elite's alienated personality, meritocratic virtue made flesh. This is most obvious in brands that openly declare their luxurious exclusivity. Cars that cost 10 times the price of an ordinary vehicle are readily available, and in fact, commonly seen in every major city today. 
Bentley Motors sold more cars priced over $150,000 in 2014 than the entire automotive industry did in 2000. The Geneva Auto Show has in recent years included unprecedented numbers of million-plus dollar cars, including one made by Lamborghini that costs $4 million. And a recent study by Brand Finance found that Ferrari has become the world's most powerful brand. Similarly, there now exist stores that specialize in watches that cost tens of thousands of dollars. Luxury ovens and refrigerators, made by firms such as Viking, Sub-Zero, Bertazzoni, and La Cornu, cost 10 and even 100 times the price of ordinary appliances. And the best restaurants in New York, Washington, or San Francisco now cost easily 50 times the price of an ordinary dinner out. The French Laundry, opened in the 1990s to fulfill its chef's longtime culinary dream to establish a destination for fine French cuisine in the Napa Valley, costs a minimum of $310 per person, without including the $5,000 bottles of wine readily available from its sellers. Overall, retail sales of conventional luxury goods have grown roughly four times faster than the broader economy, by an average of more than 10% annually since 1990. And Goldman Sachs predicts that sales will continue to outstrip economic growth going forward, doubling in the next decade. The prices of individual items bring the aggregate sales data concretely into particular lives. Whereas mid-century prices placed even luxuries within reach of the middle class, on special occasions, or perhaps where a person cared especially about a particular luxury, as a car lover, for example, the new ratios place luxury goods forever out of reach of the middle class. At mid-century, Billy Joel's Sergeant O'Leary could aim to trade in his Chevy for a Cadillac. But a middle-class person today cannot credibly dream of owning a Bentley or wearing a Blancpain watch or cooking on a La Cornue range or eating at the French Laundry. Moreover, luxury has dramatically expanded its field of action. Vast swaths of the goods that were once aimed at mass, middle-class consumption have been transformed into luxury goods. The average ticket price to a concert in Beyoncé's most recent tour, for example, exceeded $350, and tickets to home games of the Los Angeles Lakers, Dallas Cowboys, and New York Yankees can easily cost over $200. At the same time, entirely new types of luxury goods are now being made and sold. Cruise ships create elite floors with private concierges and swimming pools and no access to the mass of passengers, not even by using points from loyalty programs. Resorts create limited access passes and low traffic attractions that cost 10 times more than an ordinary entrance ticket. Airlines increase the luxury of first class and ferry the highest paying passengers between terminals in Porsches as airports build separate line-free terminals for these travelers, and entirely new businesses claim and then scalp even nominally free goods. Public parking spots, monkey parking, or restaurant reservations, reservation hop, to those rich enough to pay. 
These new businesses trigger especially robust resentment, as perhaps unsurprisingly does first-class air travel. The presence of a first-class cabin increases the incidence of air rage among passengers traveling steerage by the same amount as a 9-hour, 29-minute flight delay. And where steerage passengers must walk through first class to reach their seats by the equivalent of a 15-hour delay. Other goods, and especially services, that people do not ordinarily associate with luxury because they involve no sybaritic indulgence are also now distinctively consumed by the rich. Elite private schools and colleges are just one example, among very many. Concierge doctors, who charge patients fees and annual retainers paid out of pocket and free from price caps negotiated by insurance, provide luxury medical care. The higher fees allow them to see perhaps a quarter as many patients as ordinary doctors, provide leisurely consultations, as opposed to the 15.7 minutes of attention that comprises a doctor's median patient visit length, and offer same-day appointments, including on weekends. Concierge hospital wings provide accommodations that resemble luxury hotels. Prete bed linens, elaborate restaurant menus with dishes such as prosciutto di parma or veal scalopini, and personal butlers. For cash customers who can pay several thousand dollars a night on top of medical bills. Even luxury dentists now exist. A Frenchman named Bernard Tuati, for example, fixes the teeth of oligarchs and pop stars, including Madonna, in a Paris office nestled among the city's Chanel, Dior, and Prada boutiques, and he charges nearly $2,000 for a single filling, although Diane von Furstenberg gave him an IOU for two dresses at her boutique instead. Lawyers, accountants, and investment advisors, again paid for without insurance and on the concierge model, similarly provide luxury legal and financial services, including income defense, to rich clients. Elite households even buy distinctive groceries. High socioeconomic status Americans eat more healthy foods, fruits, vegetables, fish, nuts, whole grains, and legumes, than middle-class Americans, who eat more healthy foods than low socioeconomic status Americans. Both gaps are growing, and as usual, the gap between the top and the middle exceeds the gap between the middle and the bottom. All these goods and services are consumed almost exclusively by the rich, and indeed as a self-conscious performance of eliteness through consumption. If elites view consuming them as responsible, fruits and vegetables, necessary, medical care, or even virtuous, education, then this just shows how fully meritocratic ideals have colonized the idea of luxury. Finally, these joint trends reinforce each other and accumulate their effects, so that the rich and the rest increasingly buy not just different goods, but different brands at separate stores paid for by different means. Like the middle of the labor market, so the middle of the consumer market is literally being hollowed out as commerce shifts to the extremes of thrift and luxury. Middle-class restaurants such as Olive Garden and Red Lobster struggle even as fast food chains like Taco Bell and upscale restaurants like the French Laundry both thrive. Middle-class hotel brands 
Best Western, grow at half the pace of luxury brands, Four Seasons and St. Regis, and middle-class supermarkets and department stores, Sears and JCPenney, collapse even as bargain stores, Price Chopper, Dollar Tree, Family Dollar, and luxury stores, Whole Foods and Nordstrom, Barneys, and Neiman Marcus, both expand, often into the very locations that the middle-class brands have abandoned. Barneys, for example, famously moved into Lohman's iconic Chelsea storefront. Even at the till, elites pay differently, using income or savings. One percenters still save perhaps a third of their incomes, rather than borrowed funds. And when they do borrow, the rich use debt, for example, 30-year fixed-rate prime mortgages, to leverage rather than to replace their incomes, and to multiply the economic returns from their investments. When they accumulate in this way, differences produce not just distinction, but segregation. Elite schools and universities separate rich from middle-class students. Concierge doctors eliminate common waiting rooms or even the shared experience of waiting in any room. Even for seemingly ordinary purchases, segmented sellers increasingly have neither customers nor even products in common. The food department at Big Lots does not have a cheese cave or craft butcher and does not sell artisanal ice cream, while Whole Foods does not sell Coca-Cola, Oscar Mayer hot dogs, or Heinz ketchup. Meanwhile, Family Dollar and Neiman Marcus do not stock a single common designer. And Taco Bell and the French Laundry do not use a single ingredient in common, not even salt. Even the attitudes of the two restaurants toward their ingredients are oceans apart. Taco Bell's website says that its ingredients do have weird names but are all safe and approved by the FDA. A request for ingredients sent to the French Laundry produced a 50-page book with full-color photographs and hand-signed by the chef, telling the personal story of every supplier. Butter, according to the book, comes from a farm in Vermont that declares, to make butter, one must be willing to sacrifice a measure of free will and live according to the needs of animals. Meritocratic inequality has transformed consumption so that elite and middle-class consumers have increasingly few spaces or even experiences in common. All of life is remade on the model of class-segregated airplane cabins. Place. The roughly equivalent middle-class prosperity of St. Clair Shores and Palo Alto exemplified the economic geography of mid-century America. Other towns were similar. In Sigmona Park, just outside Washington, D.C., for example, a neighborhood newsletter kept continuously since mid-century reveals that in the early 1970s, a land surveyor, a marine major, an interior designer, a hairdresser, a policeman, a maintenance worker, and a secretary all lived side-by-side on Overbrook Street. The majority of Americans lived in comparable middle-class communities, distinguished by culture rather than income and caste, and neighborhoods owed their sense of place to climate, history, or even the characters who lived there, rather than to economic data. Incomes across regions converged steadily between the end of the Second World War and the end of the 1970s, 
and this convergence accounted for perhaps 30% of the overall reduction in wage inequality that the country experienced over those years. Whereas the richest region had enjoyed nearly twice the per capita income of the poorest in 1945, the gap fell by roughly two-thirds between 1945 and 1979. Even wealth spread itself evenly over the American map. In the mid-1960s, the country's 25 richest metro areas included Rockford, Illinois, Milwaukee, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Cleveland. These developments express the economic logic of mid-century production in geographic terms. The rentier elite had economic reasons to live near the physical assets that sustained its rents. Both agricultural land and industrial machines and factories were, often of necessity, geographically dispersed. This encouraged capital's elite owners to spread themselves throughout the country, across its physical space. And as mid-century elites diluted themselves, college graduates, for example, were spread relatively evenly across cities, the middle class came to dominate almost everywhere. Economic geography made the mid-century elite's social merger into the middle class inevitable, as the elite's dilution and thin ranks required social mixing across class lines. As Bill Clinton's and George Bush's childhoods replicated themselves in neighborhoods across the country, a single American standard of living emerged. Today, meritocratic inequality reverses these forces. Superordinate workers bring their human capital with them wherever they go, and they can find jobs that pay elite wages only by working together in close physical proximity so that their labor-intensive production can benefit from economies of agglomeration and, in particular, knowledge spillovers. Furthermore, the new elite requires a collective training infrastructure, comprising both schools and out-of-school enrichment activities, in order effectively to transmit its human capital to its children. Finally, the luxury goods that today's elite favor can be economically supplied only where there are large concentrations of rich consumers, as in prosperous cities. These forces drive the new elite toward geographic concentration, and America is resegregating by income. To begin with, the elite is moving out of the countryside and into cities. Middle-class people, by contrast, increasingly stay put, so that moving itself now marks eliteness. In 1970, Rural and urban Americans possessed roughly similar levels of education. By the new millennium, young adults in rural areas were less than half as likely to possess college degrees as young adults living in the average city, and the difference has increased still further in the year since. This represents a brain drain from the countryside commensurate to the outmigration that signally slows economic development in many poor countries. Moreover, elite migration is producing distinctive education and income profiles even among towns, as college graduates and high earners congregate in certain cities and not others. There were, by the turn of the millennium, 62 metro areas in which fewer than 17% of adults possessed college degrees, and 32 metro areas in which more than 34% were college graduates. Some cities with familiar names 
still more powerfully repel or attract educated workers. Fewer than 10% of Detroit's residents have college degrees. By contrast, Austin, Boston, San Francisco, San Jose, and Washington, D.C. all average nearly 50%. New York City similarly experienced a 73% growth in the raw number of college-educated workers between 1980 and 2010, even as the number of workers without college degrees fell by 15%. And nearly half of couples in which both partners are highly educated live in a handful of large cities. Incomes, under meritocracy, follow education. Indeed, differences in patent production alone, an excellent proxy for population education, account for nearly a third of the variation in wages across regions. It is therefore no surprise that between 1980 and 2012, the ratios of mean city incomes to the national mean grew by roughly 50% for New York, 40% for Washington, and nearly 30% for San Francisco. More broadly, since 1990, the 10 best-educated metro areas have experienced more than twice the increase in per capita incomes of the 10 worst-educated metro areas. And workers in the most educated cities now receive on average twice the salaries of workers in the least educated cities. House prices and rents follow suit. The thought that a house in an elite part of Boston, New York, San Francisco, or Washington, or for that matter in Palo Alto, would cost just twice the price of the median new house in the country or in St. Clair Shores has become laughable. Even renting in these places is now out of reach of the middle class. Rents in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Miami, and New York now cost 49, 47, 44.5, and 41 percent of the highly inflated incomes in those cities, up from 34.1, 24.7, 26.5, 23.7 percent as recently as 2000. For every 1% rise in the ratio of college graduates to non-graduates in a city, rents increase by 0.6%. The middle class simply cannot afford elite cities today. Indeed, geographic isolation by class proceeds in a finer grain still, as the rich and the rest are increasingly separated even within cities. In 1970, nearly two-thirds of Americans lived in middle-class neighborhoods. Today, only two-fifths do. And over the same period, the shares of Americans living in rich and poor neighborhoods both doubled. More generally, both the rich and the poor have become substantially more concentrated by census tract over the past 40 years. Demographic measures of residential segregation by income and education have increased by at least 25 and 100 percent, respectively, since 1970. Even mixed neighborhoods have become less mixed. Between 1970 and 1990, the shares of neighbors of the average poor family that were also poor and of the average rich family that were also rich doubled and increased by one-fifth, respectively. Socioeconomic segregation is especially extreme at the very top of the distribution. In New York's Upper East Side, 
the share of adults with college degrees more than tripled between 1960 and 2006, reaching 74%. Similarly, among the 9.1 million Americans aged 25 and over who live in the top 5% of zip codes by income and education, 63% have BAs, and the median annual household income is $141,000. The next neighborhoods over extend the isolation of the elite. Nearly 80% of the residents of zip codes in the top 5% by income and education live in clusters of such zip codes, and the average neighborhood that borders such an elite zip code is itself in the 86th percentile by income and education. Moreover, the association between the elite and certain neighborhoods holds in both directions. Recall that half of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale college alumni live in the richest and most educated 5% of zip codes. Elite professional school graduates live in more prosperous places still. Three-fifths of Harvard Business School alumni live in top 5% zip codes. Physical segregation catalyzes other varieties of segregation. Education and income jointly feed back into amenities and quality of life more generally, to give the cultural divergence just described a geographic cast. The richest, best-educated cities boast dramatically longer life expectancies, lower crime rates, less pollution, and more political clout. Perhaps most important, meritocratic parents use economic segregation to insulate themselves and their children from the disorder and disruption that have become facts of life among the less stable families that make up the rest of society. The 90% of children in elite zip codes who grow up in enduring marriages with both biological parents present have virtually no friends and neighbors who do not. The gates and guards that control crime in rich neighborhoods might receive the lion's share of attention from those who lament inequality. But the most consequential mechanisms of elite self-segregation deploy not security guards, but rather rents and house prices. It is difficult to aggregate all these effects into a single composite. But according to one estimate, neighborhood quality and other amenities associated with rich, well-educated cities push inequality of well-being a further 30% higher than inequality of dollar income. Economic inequality produces entirely distinct ecosystems for the rich and the rest. Small wonder, then, that not just the facts of geographic mobility, but also the reasons behind it have changed. Whereas Americans used to move to cities seeking better weather, they now move expressly to be around others like themselves. Finally, these effects reach across not just facets of life, but also generations. Poor neighborhoods obstruct, and rich neighborhoods facilitate the training that children require to join the elite as adults. The effects, once again, are substantial and apply across the income distribution. At the bottom, upward mobility is highest in cities that still disperse poor families among middle-class and rich ones in mixed-income neighborhoods of just the sort that are generally disappearing. And higher up the distribution, rich neighborhoods support the extraordinary top-middle per-pupil expenditure gaps documented earlier, which underwrite the enormous skew to wealth 
among students at elite colleges and universities. Each city and each neighborhood reprises these trends in a distinctive way, refracting patterns that arise generally through its own sense of place. But unlike at mid-century, data concerning income and caste now capture and determine a great deal about a place. Even towns that have remained middle class, like St. Clair Shores, have become distinctively rather than generically so. Literally remarkable for having few really rich and few really poor residents. And most towns have moved either up or down the caste order to become identified as rich or poor. Economic trends, not quirks of personality, now determine what places are like. Overbrook Street, as it happens, has followed the same path as Palo Alto. Today, median annual household income in the Sigmona Park zip code exceeds $100,000, and 60% of adults in the neighborhood are college-educated. Overbrook Street houses lawyers, doctors, and elite government workers. Fitzgerald and Hemingway Redux Mid-century American culture did not allow the economic distinctions between their families to make a great difference to the lived experience of Bill Clinton's and George Bush's childhoods. Rather, they shared a middle-class society with each other and with most of the rest of their generation. By contrast, the lives of Bill's daughter, Chelsea, and George's daughters, Barbara and Jenna, have been determined by their families' now-shared eliteness, making them unrecognizable to middle-class children today, and equally so to the elite of their parents' generation. Chelsea Clinton attended an elite private high school, the last child before her to be raised in the White House. Jimmy Carter's daughter, Amy, attended public school, and then Stanford, Columbia, and Oxford universities. After finishing her studies, she worked for the management consultancy McKinsey & Company and the private equity and distressed securities investment firm Avenue Capital Group. Chelsea's husband, the son of two members of the House of Representatives who had been friendly with her parents in Washington, also graduated from Stanford and Oxford and then worked for Goldman Sachs before starting his own hedge fund. The couple met at a Renaissance weekend on Hilton Head Island. They married at Astor Court, a 50-acre Beaux-Arts estate built on a bluff overlooking the Hudson River during the last Gilded Age. Chelsea wore a Vera Wang gown, and they spent over $10 million on an apartment, unsurprisingly in Manhattan. Barbara Bush graduated from Yale University and has worked for design museums and international development organizations. Jenna Bush has also worked for international charities, publishing a book about her work, as well as serving as a news correspondent for NBC. Jenna's husband, whose father has been, variously, Assistant Secretary of Education, Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, and Chairman of the Virginia Republican Party, works for Kohlberg Kravis Roberts, a leading private equity firm specializing in leveraged buyouts. The couple were married at a stone altar and cross specially commissioned for the occasion. None of the Clinton or Bush children has ever lived in a middle-class setting. And just as Bill Clinton and George Bush exemplified mid-century America, so the younger Clinton and Bushes reflect their generation and the new age. They are typical of the elite today, at most 
an extreme case of a broader trend, and not in any way exceptional. Meritocratic inequality's effects on the lives of the rich and the rest are no longer limited to income and wealth, understood as abstract dollar sums. Instead, meritocracy constitutes a caste system, which partitions the rich and the rest into separate and alien life worlds. Unsurprisingly, when the rich and the rest work, marry, parent, worship, and assemble differently, a vast gulf opens up between them, separating them not just in their outer habits, but also in their inner lives, giving them different hopes and fears. Less educated Americans display lower trust, lower participation in civic life, and greater pessimism about the future than their more educated counterparts. And these differences are greater in the United States than in most, and along some dimensions virtually all, other advanced economies. The few class migrants who cross the meritocratic divide today reveal its enormous size, and the strains of foreignness touch both the grand arcs and the petty details of their lives. Even inside elite colleges, students from poorer backgrounds marry at lower rates than students from richer ones, for example. And work-study jobs, which typically require scholarship students to perform conventionally working-class tasks, are experienced as petty indignities. The affront is intensified by the fact that elite student bodies skew so dramatically toward wealth that many financial aid recipients come from households sufficiently wealthy that the work-study jobs fall outside not just their aspirations, but their past experience of class. A student receiving financial aid from Yale College recently complained that Yale has the ability to make people do unpleasant things and be thankful for it. Office jobs, library jobs, all of which I have held unwillingly but inevitably because I am not rich enough to own even my own time. The self-absorbed, even churlish tone of the complaint only emphasizes the student's impossible class position. As an outsider who cannot yet afford the life she is expected by both her teachers and her peers to lead. Affinity groups, Yale Law School's is called first-generation professionals, try to absorb the strains of this dilemma. But meritocracy possesses such ideological power that these groups cannot decide whether they aim to bring down the class structure or to ease their members' paths into the elite. The universities face the mirror image of this problem. They wish to affirm the backgrounds of their working and middle-class students. But unlike for other minorities, they cannot credibly aim to dismantle the meritocratic hierarchy whose constitution is their core mission. The meritocratic closure of the elite has become so pervasive that class migrants must now define themselves in terms of their relationship to it, as neither Bill Clinton nor George Bush ever needed to. As one college graduate remarked after returning home to his non-college community, I feel like I have changed sides in some very important game. The metaphor of changing sides captures the essence of the lived experience of comprehensive inequality. Because meritocracy permits no overlap between the lives of the rich and the rest, there can be no middle ground for the classes to share, or even on which they might meet. A final and more literal measure of comprehensive inequality looks to the health and longevity of the rich and the rest 
as they live on either side of it. These data cannot sustain a precise metric, of course, but they do yield a good general indicator of accumulated advantage. Medical data draw meritocratic privileges bottom line. The rich and educated report massively lower rates of health-related limits on physical activity, difficulty seeing, heart disease, psychological distress, obesity, and generalized unwellness than both the poor and the middle class. And the rich middle class gaps are comparable to the middle class poor gaps. Elite Americans also smoke at massively lower rates than others. The percentage of smokers among Americans who have attended some college is roughly half that among Americans with a high school education only and among high school dropouts. And the last two percentages are virtually identical. Moreover, when they do get sick, elite Americans increasingly receive different and even separate health care, not just from the poor, but also from the middle class. Even teeth now signal income and status, much as height did in the Ancien Regime. Rich Americans spend more than $1 billion each year on cosmetic dentistry, even as not just poor but also middle-class Americans increasingly rely on charity dental clinics and even hospital emergency rooms, so that one out of five Americans over 65 has no real teeth left. Good teeth have thus become what one middle-class patient at a charity clinic recently called a telltale visible sign of wealth. These and other differences in health produce enormous and increasing differences in life expectancy. Between 1999 and 2003, midlife mortality among middle-aged white non-Hispanic Americans with a high school education or less rose, even as mortality among people with some college but no degree held steady and mortality among those with a BA or more continued to fall. Indeed, mortality among less educated Americans rose so steeply that it outweighed falling mortality among the educated, so that mortality overall rose by about half a percent a year, reversing two decades of 2% annual mortality declines. More broadly, between 1980 and 2010, the life expectancy at age 50 of the bottom two quintiles of the income distribution remained flat or fell slightly for men and declined significantly for women, including by nearly four years for women in the bottom quintile. The life expectancy of the middle two quintiles rose for men and remained flat or even fell slightly for women, and the life expectancy of the top quintile rose steeply for both men and women. The gap between life expectancy in the top and in the bottom two quintiles grew by about seven years for men, from five years to 12 years, and by about nine years for women, from four years to 13 years. Moreover, even within the elite, the very rich live longer than their merely rich counterparts. And even this very rich, merely rich gap has been growing. For both men and women, the differences in life expectancy at 25 between people with BAs or more education and people with some college but no BA exceed the gaps between people with some college and those with a high school degree only. 
Indeed, for both men and women, mortality rates are markedly lower among the top 1% by wealth than among the top 5%, and lower among the top 5% than among the top 10%. These gaps have been growing, with the top 1, top 10% gap roughly doubling between the early 1980s and the mid-2000s. Finally, and inevitably given where the rich and the rest live, these trends take on a geographic cast. The gap in life expectancy at birth between a rich state such as Connecticut and a poor state such as Mississippi is now nearly six years. And even as lifespans increase steadily in rich places, those in poor places decline. The lifespan of women in eastern Kentucky, for example, fell by over a year between 2007 and 2011. To grasp the size of this aggregated meritocratic advantage, consider that the gap between life expectancy in the United States and Nicaragua is about four years, and that curing all cancers would also increase life expectancy by only the same amount. Although Hemingway may have won the argument with Fitzgerald at mid-century, meritocratic inequality increasingly vindicates Fitzgerald's view. A lifestyle runs through the body of the person who lives it, as the flesh surrounds us with its own decisions. Today, the very bodies of the rich are different from the rest. The difference is so large that the rich and the rest might as well live in separate countries. Thank you.